If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is a special bonus hour number three of the World According to Zig podcast for this November 19th. 2017. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of the show where you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from a true conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. For the third consecutive week, we're doing a a bonus hour on the uh, never-ending Penn State, Jerry Sandusky, Joe Paterno saga, which I have been embroiled in for now over five years. My website is framingpaterno.com. I hope you checked out last week's interview with author Mark Pendergrast out with a brand new book, The Most Hated Man in America, The Rush to Judgment Against Jerry Sandusky. The reason why we're doing uh, an extra hour this week is that um, this week I think I came to a new startling revelation that in a rational world would blow up the entire case if ever 100% proven, and I... I don't know that I'm at 100% proving this. By the standards of this case, I realize that, you know, you basically need video uh, evidence, uh, especially if you're coming at it from my very unpopular perspective. Never quite understood why my perspective is so unpopular since I'm the guy saying um, nobody was sexually abused here. We ought to be happy about it. But I digress. Uh, It deals with the date that the Mike McQuarrie episode Occurred, And and if you listen to uh, hour number three last week, my interview with Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, a memory expert from UC Irvine, uh, she and I went a little bit sideways over this issue of the date uh, of the infamous Mike McQuarrie episode, which is at the epicenter of the whole case and and the entire case against Penn State and most of the case against Jerry Sandusky. I think partially because she doesn't fully understand football culture and she doesn't understand how years are so important to football coaches and players that years are everything. Everything, especially in college football, occurs within one calendar year. And therefore, you remember everything by the year. And to misremember the year badly, and to put it after 9-11, as Mike McQuarrie originally testified to, and then find out it was before 9-11, which he testified to at Jerry Sandusky's trial after the prosecution had to, it's greatly to their embarrassment, change the date, the month, and the year, I think is very significant. Well, here's the story on this, because to me, this is everything. The date is everything. Mike McQuarrie's first story is that he witnessed Jerry Sandusky allegedly assaulting a boy on March 1st of 2002 in a Penn State shower. And that's the date when the whole firestorm breaks and Joe Paterno gets fired and all of that. And that's not the right date. It's not close to the right date. Jerry Sandusky knew immediately that was not the right date. He said he knew that was impossible. Impossible because he had always associated that night, which was the only time he ever took a shower at night with a boy. By the way, the boy was a month short of his 14th birthday, a boy by the name of Alan Myers. And he specifically remembered the episode because Penn State spoke to him about it at least a couple of weeks now. We might not, we may now think maybe a couple of months after it happened. He has always associated that with two things that occurred at the end of 2000 and early 2001. 
him losing out on the head coaching job at the University of Virginia at the very last second and his autobiography being released. He has always been 100% consistent in that. And there were emails that were released by Gary Schultz, one of the Penn State administrators who would eventually plead guilty to a misdemeanor, even though he, he knows he's innocent. And I believe he believes that Jerry Sandusky is likely innocent. Uh, but he was forced to plead because of the political nature of this case and the fear of a, of a polluted jury pool. But his emails that came out a few months after the firestorm broke proved that this episode had to have occurred before February 10th, 2001. And we know that because on February 10th, 2001, Mike McQuarrie meets much more briefly than he has ever testified to, which will be proven soon, I hope, with Joe Paterno at his house. So it has always then, therefore, been presumed that in order to provoke a meeting with Joe Paterno at his house on Saturday morning, the event of this occurrence, this episode, must have been February 9th, a Friday, of 2001. And I, stupidly, have also always presumed February 9th, 2001 must be the date. I mean, first of all, they can't screw it up twice, right? I mean, they already screwed it up royally once. The second time with emails, they've got to get it right. Well, I recently began to rethink this, and I have to acknowledge why I rethought this. <laughs> it's actually because of a guy who I have disdain for. There's a guy who has researched this case named Ray Blehar, who I used to work with at FramingPaterno.com, and we broke off our uh, coordination several years ago because I realized he was a lying sack of crap and a conspiracy nut. I always knew he was a conspiracy nut, and I suspected he was a lying sack of crap. But um, I didn't know for sure. And then I, I had no choice but to give him all sorts of benefits of the doubt. Anyway, Ray uh, has occasionally come up with discoveries that end up leading to dead ends or turn out not to be accurate. But occasionally he finds something that isn't what he thinks it is, but it's still relevant for other reasons. And he recently discovered that on the night of February 9th, 2001, there was a major rock concert. I believe it was the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> there, was, there was a Red Hot Chili Peppers concert right across the street on Penn State's campus, right across the street from the building where this event occurred that night, that Friday night of February 9th, 2001. Now, I don't believe that that proves necessarily that Mike's lying about that date because, you know, this occurred supposedly at like 930 at night, the concerts going on, you know, in theory, you could not have noticed it because obviously everyone's inside the building. And while the traffic patterns may have been different, you know, that doesn't prove that this didn't happen. However, it does do two things. It's weird that Mike didn't use that as a point of his memory. He's never mentioned, oh, yeah, that night there was a concert right across the street. So that's weird. But it also discredits his first version of the story. His first version of the story, importantly, is that this occurred over spring break. He thought it was the Friday that began spring break and that there was nobody on campus. It was desolate. And nothing going on. And, of course, that was seen as an indication that Jerry had chosen that time and place, as opposed to his home, which doesn't make any damn sense. But he's, he's chosen this time and place to molest this boy because he's safe on a Friday night when spring break's starting. That's like the implication. But wait a minute. How could you think it occurred over a break and campus was desolate when the Red Hot Chili Peppers are playing right across the street. That seems odd, to say the least. And so I started thinking. My first reaction was, no, we already know it was February 9th. There's no way it's not February 9th. And I said, so wait a minute. Why do we know this? On what are we basing this? And as I started to think about it, I'm like, wait a minute. We don't know this didn't happen February 9th. And so I went back and I revisited everything. 
And one of the many problems in this case, and I am the worst offender of this, and it's probably, you know, a lot of what's driving me, people say, what, what, Zig, why are you still on this? One, because I'm the only guy that can do it right. Two, I'm the only guy that has the knowledge. Three, I actually have some guilt. I have some good old Catholic guilt because I fucked up big time early on here because I presumed things I should not have presumed. And so when I interviewed Jerry Sandusky the first time, I've interviewed him twice in prison for over six hours. I'm presuming he's guilty as hell. And because I'm presuming he's guilty as hell, I'm not giving what he's saying a lot of credibility unless I can absolutely verify it through some other source. And I'll never forget, Jerry, in that first prison interview, this is after he's obviously convicted, this is early 2013. You know, most of the story has already been done at this point. And he is clearly not buying the February 9, 2001 date. And I'm like, really, Jerry? You, you're not buying it happened on February 2001? And, he, and he, he, he says to me, I know that can't be the right date. I know this happened on the way back from a book signing in Washington, PA. I, I associated it with the Virginia coaching job situation. All of that occurs way earlier than February 9, 2001. And, I, and he's, he's basically in solitary confinement at this point. I'm thinking either he's lying to me to try to make up for some deceit, or he's just so groggy and he's older and he can't remember. Well, if I had known then what I know now, I would have been like, okay, there's no way February 9th's the date. And I would have presumed that that's the fact, and I would have tried to figure out, okay, well, then what's the real date? Right? And there are other problems with that date. February 7th of 2001 was National Signing Day for college football recruits. Mike McQuarrie, as a graduate assistant, that's what he does. He recruits. Now, one, that means he's probably awfully busy, way busier than his description of just hanging out on a Friday night watching the movie Rudy, getting inspired, and deciding to go into the locker room. That doesn't sound like a guy who's awfully busy. But two, it's another data point that he would remember. Oh, yeah, I remember. It was, wow, what a week that was. That was National Signing Day. We had just gotten started with signing recruits. I was busy as hell. I went into the lock. He doesn't say anything about that. So he doesn't mention the concert. He doesn't mention the, uh, the recruiting day. And he's saying the campus is desolate. So that doesn't fit. And one of the things that doesn't never fit with February 9th is that Jerry always insisted that the boy he was with, Alan Myers, had off of school that day. And I checked, and Alan Myers had school on February 9th, 2001. So that doesn't make any damn sense. So I started to think, all right, is it possible that this thing really occurred way before February 9th? And one of the things that it would really explain, and this goes back to the perfect storm of this case, is that when the crap hits the fan, one of the first stories is that the former athletic director at Penn State testified that when he asked Jerry Sandusky about this episode in the shower, which the athletic director, Tim Curley, thinks occurred only a couple weeks before, because he's presuming February 9th, although he doesn't know that's the date, because 10 years later no one remembers. But in other words, when he goes to Jerry Sandusky, he thinks he's asking him about an event that had just happened a couple weeks before. and when, So a couple weeks before, he asks him about a Friday night, and Jerry blanks. Jerry's like, Tim, I don't know what you're talking about. I wasn't there. Now that seems like deceit, right? Because... It's being reported everywhere. Jason Dusky is a pedophile. You know, Joe Paterno has been fired. <laughs> the, the two administrators have charged. The crap storm is at full force. Well, ha-ha! Jerry didn't want to tell Tim about it because he's been caught. He doesn't want to admit to an event where he's molesting a boy. That makes sense. But you know what makes more sense? Is that Jerry didn't know what Tim was talking about 
because he was being asked about something that occurred in Tim's mind two or three weeks ago, and it was actually over two months before. And so if you get asked, let's say you get asked in early March, hey, Jerry, where were you um, a couple of Fridays ago? We, we got a report that you were in, a, in the shower at Lash Building with a boy. And you start to think back and you go, two weeks ago? Three weeks ago? What? Friday night? I wasn't there. I don't, Tim, I don't know what you're talking about. You would be telling the truth. But in retrospect, it would look like you were being deceitful once it was presumed that you were guilty as hell. And then what ends up happening is Jerry goes back to Tim and says, after thinking about it, wait a minute, you must be talking about this other event. Let me give you the name and the phone number of the kid. And Jerry actually even contacts Alan Myers and says, Penn State might be calling you to verify nothing happened. And then, fatefully, Tim Curley decides not, for whatever reason, to not call Alan Myers. And if that call had been made, none of this happens. The entire Penn State scandal is a non-entity. It never occurs. But that call doesn't occur. And so then we start with this domino effect of crazy situations. So, in an effort to get back into this situation, I then start to presume, all right, let me, re- let me totally revisit this. Let me start from square one. Let's presume Jerry's telling the truth and that this had something to do with the book signing in Washington, PA, and with the job situation at Virginia. So I go to the Washington newspaper. There's a tiny little newspaper in Washington, PA. And I say, is there any way to find out when a book signing might have occurred in Washington, PA in late 2000, early 2001. Well, their search engine was, unfortunately, had a gap in it right in that time period where there's nothing coming up on any searches. So I contact the webmaster, and he's somewhat helpful, and he tries to track something down, but he's finding nothing at all mentioning Jerry Sandusky in that time period, which doesn't prove anything because... It's a small newspaper, and this was a book signing at his father's rec home. So it wasn't even like it was all that public. It was mostly, sounds like mostly for friends. Anyway, I'm getting nowhere. And then one of my supporters, a guy by the name of Andy, finds a newspaper article in Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, where in February of that year, after after Mike McQuarrie has already gone to Joe Paterno, but before... Tim Curley has ever spoken to Jerry about this. It's late February 2001. There's an article, a feature on Jerry because of his book. And in the feature, Jerry is quoted as talking about how he went to State College for a book signing on the day he found out he did not get the Virginia coaching job. And that because the book signing went so well and that People really showed their appreciation for his charity, The Second Mile. He realized that this had all worked out for the best and that it was better that he not take the job at Virginia and that he maintain his position at the head of The Second Mile charity. Well, now we got something because now we know what date that was. We know that's December 30th, a Saturday, because there's all sorts of News articles indicating that on that morning, Virginia announces that Al Groh, a Virginia alum, is going to be the head football coach at the University of Virginia. That's a Saturday, December 30th. So I send that clipping, or quoting that clipping, in an email to Jerry Sandusky in prison. And that finally jogs Jerry's memory. He's like, aha. Yes, now I remember what was going on. I had a book signing the previous day in Washington, PA, home where his rec home is, where he grew up. I was doing the book signing there, and I came home to State College that night, and that was the night that I had the shower with Alan Myers. The next morning was a book signing in State College. I found out about the Virginia job, and that must have been the night. Friday, December 29th, which is 
completely consistent with a desolate campus. You're not going to get more desolate than December 29th in the middle of two holidays, the middle of winter break, nothing going on. It's a Friday night. That is consistent with Mike McQuarrie's first version of this story. And I said, well, is there any way, you know, anyone can corroborate this? Because Dottie, his wife, doesn't remember anything of the dates. And he said, well, I spoke to my college roommate on, on that day and on the way back home. He said, I stopped at a gas station and I spoke to Tom Frederick, my college roommate. And I said, well, do you think Tom would speak to me? He said, well, yeah, I think he would. <laughs> Why don't you ask Dottie for his contact information? So I did that. And I had a very interesting conversation with Tom Frederick a couple of days ago, and he's agreed to come on the podcast to uh, further detail why his memory of this time period, I think, is incredibly vital. And so he joins us now. Tom Frederick, welcome to the podcast. Well, glad to be here. Tom, I, I really enjoyed our conversation the other day. You're a no-nonsense kind of guy, and you're just giving it to me straight and uh, really had no idea uh, why it was I was even calling you. Is that, By the way, is that, is that accurate, that you had no yes. idea? I had no idea. And, and, and when, as we were going through the story, which you're going to revisit shortly, you had no idea of the potential significance of it, did you? Absolutely none. Okay. And we had never spoken before, right? Uh, no, I've been with you with uh, his appeal and all, but you, we didn't speak. Okay, and and obviously Jerry Sandusky has never contacted you about uh, about this issue or why I might be calling. No, absolutely not. Okay, all right. Now, for just so people know, um, you, you're a Penn Stater. You went to Penn State, play, played football at Penn State, right? You, yep. Uh, what was um, what was your? You were also Jerry Sandusky's roommate at Penn State, correct? Yep, junior and senior year. So for two years, yep. as a junior and a senior, you were roommates with Jerry Sandusky at Penn State University. Yes, I was. And and you maintained a friendship with him since then? 50 years. And you're still friends with him today? Yep. Okay, so um, we'll talk about that and, and some of the significant uh, things I think you have to say about uh, Jerry in general. But let's, let's get to the, the issue of why I called you the other day. So you have uh, a um, you had I guess I don't know if you still do you still do but it, back in late 2000 when Jerry was interviewing to be the head football coach at the University of Virginia you were particularly interested in this situation one because you're friends with Jerry and two because you have some connection or had some connection to the University of Virginia is that correct Yes it is and what was that uh, My son went there on a full scholarship and was captain of their football team in the mid-90s and played in the NFL for five years. And uh, one of my teammates was on the coaching staff, so I had a lot of connections with Virginia. All right, so here your your college roommate, Jerry Sandusky, is, is interviewing on a couple different occasions to be the head football coach at Virginia, and you have these connections to Virginia. And so obviously, you know, you would be very, very interested to find out yep. what was going on. And so you contacted Jerry twice in one day. Is that, is that accurate? Yes, but that was after they contacted me to tell me what was going on. Who's the they? Who's the they? Uh, the University of Virginia. Okay, so you, you really were connected. So the University of Virginia actually contacted you to say, hey, we're considering Jerry as our next head football coach, right? Right. A, per, a person connected with it. It wasn't an official mm-hmm. call from them. But, yes, someone who knew what was going on called me. So you're in the loop, right? Yeah. Well, sort of, yes. You're, you're at least somewhat <laughs> in the loop. <laughs> yeah, somewhat. Okay. Yeah. And so – you are, it, it's, and this is all going on in late December of 2000, and, yep. and you decide that you're going to contact Jerry to find out how his, his, his second interview went. Is that accurate? Well, the accurate is that he had left without signing it, mm-hmm. and the person si- signing I contact- his Signing his contract, you mean. Right. Mm-hmm. So my person I talked to was concerned that it would you know, he just thought that it could have been handled better and maybe I could help, you know, talk to Jerry and get him to think about it a little differently. 
So in other words, Jerry, uh, it's my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, that, that Jerry had been handed a contract to be the head coach at the University of Virginia, which is a big deal. He'd never been a head yep. co- big. Uh, he'd never been never never been a head coach before. He had retired right. had been had retired from Penn State a year before this, and uh, that Jerry wasn't all that concerned with the. It wasn't totally about football to him. He was concerned about whether or not he could bring the Second Mile charity to Charlottesville, Virginia, and that this was creating maybe a little bit of hesitation on both sides. Is that accurate? Right, or else a comparable charity. It may not have been the second mile, but, you know, something similar. And Virginia wanted to talk football and not mix the two together. Okay. So on a particular day, you decide to call Jerry to say, hey, Jerry, what's going on, uh, my man? Uh, are, are you in or not? I mean, is, is, that a fair, is that a fair assessment? Well... Yeah, to find out what was happening and maybe give him a little pep talk for Virginia. Since my son had been there and we had been there for years watching him play, so yeah, a little pep talk, more than information, I was just going to give a little pro-Virginia talk to him. Okay, and so you talked to him during the day on this one particular day, and what was the nature of that conversation? It was fairly quick, and I just said, I want to talk to you about your interview and you know what went on and he kind of cut me off and said he would like to talk to me but he was on his way he said to washington and at the time you interpreted washington to be washington dc right right i thought he was leaving charlottesville to go there and he said he had to speak at a event uh he had a book out and he was speaking over the dinner hour so I thought it was Washington D.C. at the time, which and makes, he would call me back. Listen, that makes sense. I mean, he's in in your mind. He's coming back from Charlottesville, though. Yes. Uh, even though you know, we now believe that that's not really what was going on. But at the right, time, but that's what I thought was right, going on. Sure, sure, makes total sense. You know, he's in Charlottesville, Virginia. He mentions Washington, and you're, you know, Charlottesville, not that far from Washington. That makes sense. Now, now, in, in, thanks to our conversation. Uh, you know, you you obviously understand that Jerry grew up in Washington, Pennsylvania, right? Yeah, I, I know that. I've been there. Right. Okay. And so, yeah. and so, uh, y- there's nothing that you know that would be inconsistent with you having just simply misunderstood Washington no, D.C. Absolutely nothing. It makes perfect sense. Okay. All right. So, so you talk very briefly with Jerry on this particular day. Uh, and he's on his way to Washington, which we now believe is Washington, PA. And then you and then you have another conversation with Jerry Sandusky at night of that very same day. Is that accurate? That is accurate. And what's the nature of that conversation? Well, he called me back, and I know it was nighttime, but I could not, you know, it's too long ago for me to pin it down. But sure. I know it was in the evening, and he was on his way back to Penn State. And so he's from, you know, he's coming from Washington, PA to State College. Well, from Washington. Right, I right, didn't right. know PA. <laughs> right. Okay. He's coming from, in your mind, he's coming from Washington, which we now know to be PA, to right. State College, Pennsylvania. And why is it that you remember the conversation so well? Well, because he called me from a gas station and being a roommate and how you bust on each other when you're roommates. And before we could get into the conversation, he was complaining he didn't know how to work the automatic gas pump. (laughs) And I went into a big thing about you sitting there with a couple million dollar contract in your pocket and you can't turn the gas on. (laughs) And I mean, I never forgot that because I said, you know, nobody offered me anything, but I could turn the gas on. (laughs) But it was typical roommate you know, busted on him. And sure. so and that's how we began to cut. And I never forgot that because it, I thought I was humorous. So I was, you know, it stuck in my mind, the conversation. Okay. And, 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 um, and at that point, uh, the, the Virginia job was still on the table as far as you guys knew. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So there, there was, there had been no definitive decision made on the Virginia job, at least as far as Jerry Sandusky and you, uh, Tom Frederick knew. Is that accurate? That is accurate. My understanding, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but 
I think I was under the understanding he was going to go home and discuss it with Dottie, but mm-hmm. I can't honestly say I remember those exact words, but sure. that was sort of what I theorized was going okay. to take place. And do you have do you have a recollection of what day of the week you think this was? I know it was late in the week. I don't know Thursday or Friday because I know when the job was announced on the weekend, it, they were close together. So it, I could be off by one day, but it was near the end of the week. It, and it, there's nothing. There's nothing that would dispute if if someone told you for sure it was a Friday. There's no no reason no. for you to dispute that, right? No, it was either a Thursday or Friday, but I, I couldn't honestly say which day. I don't, I don't know. Okay. All right. So um, and then what? Ha- what happens then? What's the next? The next thing that you learn uh, with regard to Jerry Sandusky and the University of Virginia head coaching job? I'm watching ESPN that weekend, either Saturday or Sunday, I don't know which. And it came across on the scroll that Al Groh, and again, his son Mike was the quarterback of Virginia with my son. And my son had also had uh, contact with Al Groh in his five years in pro ball. So I was flabbergasted when I saw that because I was under the impression Jerry had the weekend to at least discuss it and get back to them. For for people that don't understand uh, what what you're just saying there is that you learn over that weekend, you think either a Saturday or a Sunday, just after this conversation with Jerry, uh, that you learn that uh, that the head football coaching job at Virginia went to Al Groh, who at the time was the New York Jets head coach and who was a Virginia alum with deep connections to Virginia. Is that right? Yes, and my son had been with the Jets that preseason. Oh, I didn't. So. Even, I didn't. I didn't know that. Wow, that's another weird connection. Oh yeah, there's all kind of. Okay, that well, it, it it gets it gets even weirder than that. Okay, so, so all right, so now the the reason why this is significant, which you know I've I've explained to you after you've told mm-hmm. this story, is one that you you 100 percent. Uh, back up Jerry's version of events, and we've been trying to refresh his recollection on the time period of when this Mike McQuarrie episode might have taken place, and he yep. and he has always maintained that it occurred the night after having taken a trip from Washington, PA, back to State College after having done a book signing for his book, his autobiography, which came out right around that time period, and and your story jives 100% uh, uh, with his story and um and if that's the case and and Jerry via email now believes that it is and if we have now defined that night as the night of December 29th because we know from other documentation that it was December 30th when Vir- Virginia announces that Al Groh has gotten the West Vir- not the West Virginia the Virginia job with December 30th December 30th of 2000 is that day it's a Saturday it's the day that Jerry's doing a book signing in State College and there's a newspaper article in the Pittsburgh paper uh, a month and a half later describing uh, have uh, Jerry doing that book signing and realizing that he had made the right decision not to go to Virginia because of people reacting to him at that book signing and m- one man making a, a large contribution to the second mile charity and another boy uh, saying to him, I'm really looking forward to seeing you at camp this summer. And Jerry basically uh, coming to the conclusion, well, maybe this was all for the best. All that timeline now comp- completely jives based upon your recollection of what happened on what we now believe to be December 29th, that Friday, uh, and, and gives a, a, a enormous substantiation to Jerry's story, which, if true, means that Mike McQuarrie did not tell anybody about this for over five weeks. Because right, and that that's that was news to me when you told me that. Yeah, you had no idea that the why. No, I didn't know that time difference. And the only other thing I'm going to say, and honest, you know, on a Bible, I couldn't swear, but I know it was night. And if you're telling me from that gas station he drove back to State College, and that's when all this occurred, that would seem to me it would have had to been pretty late at night for that to happen. Well, it's it, the testimony is that it was around nine thirty, somewhere in that range. Well, and that's what I honest, I couldn't pin down when I talked to him. I know it was night. 
Well, you know, his signing was over, but right. Well, you, you obviously, like you had said, that's a three-hour trip, so it doesn't. Well, doesn't kind of make sense to me, but well, no. If you think about it, first of all, you don't know at what point in that trip he's getting gas. No, I don't. No, and, I don't. And and also, you got to remember. December 29th is among the darkest days of the year. So it gets dark in State College or, or, you know, in in Pennsylvania around 435 o'clock. So there's a lot of time there where you're you're thinking it's nighttime and you could be having this conversation. Um, And so, you know, but but I I like your, you know, for lack of a better term, your testimony, because you're just telling it like you remember it. You have absolutely no inclination whatsoever to tell me something that's not true because I want to hear it. I'm just trying to figure out what really happened. And I wouldn't do that. I know you wouldn't, which I, I think is fantastic. Now, let's talk about two other things. One of the things that I've always been fascinated by, because there's two elements to this story, as I see it, there's the cover-up and then there's the, the alleged crimes of Jerry Sandusky. The, one of the things that blows up the Penn State cover-up theory, to me, is this entire idea, this reality, that a year after Jerry Sandusky has retired from Penn State, he's offered a contract to be the head football coach at Virginia which in the real world would never happen under any circumstances if, if one school had any suspicion that he was a pedophile, but it certainly would not have happened at Virginia because of the many connections between Penn State and Virginia. Can you explain that? Well, George Welsh being the head coach, for one thing, was uh, an assistant at Virginia when Jerry and I were there, uh, when we were at Penn State. And that, you know, he was leaving. And also the other person on the coaching staff, I don't want to mention name, but he was a Penn State graduate with us, Jerry and I. And and just knowing my son and the honor system and being around that program for five years, no, there would have been no interview if any of that had been known. And, and by the way, as a matter of fact, I wouldn't have called Jerry if that had been I'll be blunt with you. If I thought there was anything to it, him and I wouldn't be speaking. Of course, right? I mean, uh, no. obviously. But and 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 just to fill out the full picture, you know, uh, Jay Paterno. It's Jay. Joe, yes, he had been a grad assistant when my son was there. Yep, at Virginia. So Jay Paterno, the son of Joe Paterno, is a grad mm-hmm. assistant at Virginia. He's married to a University of Virginia alum. Yep. <laughs> so there, there are a myriad of connections between Penn State and Virginia yep. at this time that would have easily prevented. I mean, one phone call, one phone call would have blown up. Yeah, no, there was no, no, nobody thought anything. No, none of this was out there. Right. And so, therefore, there's, it's impossible to believe that by this point, late 2000, Penn State has any idea that Jerry Sandusky, uh, this this local legend, uh, you know, defensive coordinator mm-hmm. to help them win two national championship ch- championships, is somehow a child molester or pedophile or what have you. That just make, does, makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, and yet no one wants to, to mention this. Uh, now, people might wonder, so why did Jerry not get the job? Isn't that an indication that maybe Virginia found out at the last second that Jerry was a pedophile? But no, the reality is Al Groh had just coached the New York Jets. They had, they had lost their last three games of the regular season to barely miss the playoffs. Ironically enough, their quarterback during that time period was Vinny Testaverde, the same quarterback that Jerry became famous for devising a defense that intercepted five times in the 1986 Fiesta Bowl. So there's how about that for irony? And Al Groh, I think, was worried about his job. Realized that the his you know his alum he's an alum of Virginia that his is where he went to school that job is not going to open up you know again maybe for five or ten years depending on how Jerry does he may never get another chance to do this he calls Virginia right in the middle of Jerry's uh, second interview Jerry actually references to me in my interview with him from prison that he he felt a cold wind come over after the person he was interviewing with took a phone call and Al Groh simply decides. Hey, guys, hold on a second. I want the job, which explains the remarkable speed with which, yeah. with, with which Virginia hires him. Because this was all within 24 hours. Jerry goes yes, from... Yes, it was. Right? 
I mean, that's your recollection. Yeah, no, that's perfectly true. Yeah. So none of this, none of this makes any damn sense at all <laughs> from the standpoint. Well, the only thing I'm going to say is the call I got indicated nothing with Jerry's behavior or anything else. It was all due to him not jumping all over this contract and tying it in with the charity. Yeah, and, and by the way... So them not giving him the job, I think if he would have said, I'll take it, he would have got the job. Well, he was given a contract. I mean, so... Yes, and, and that's what they told me. He had left with it. Right, he had it in his hands. I mean, if he... That's what they told me. If he signs that contract instead He's of leaving, not only is he the coach... None of this Penn State thing happens at all. None of it, mm-hmm. uh, which is just mind-blowing. All right, last thing for you, Tom. You've already stated that you're still friends with Jerry, college roommate for two years. Give us a sense of the Jerry Sandusky you knew as a, a college roommate and whether or not anything mm-hmm. you saw as a college roommate, which you know most people, I think, understand – you're a college roommate for a guy with a guy for two years. You get to know him pretty darn well. Give us a sense of the Jerry Sandusky you knew and how incompatible that is with the Jerry Sandusky that is now publicly portrayed. Uh, extremely organized to the point that I thought it was ridiculous. He, I mean, he was an A student, a starter on the football team. He was like clockwork. I mean, bed 930 every night study habits. I mean, they actually gave me to Jerry as a roommate because they used to say I was all potential. I mean, I had a lot of ability, but wasn't using any of it in the classroom or the field. And they felt Jerry would be a good influence on me. And it didn't help me on the field, but it did in the classroom. And I graduated and taught for 33 years. And I owe a lot of that, not the conversations we had, but just watching how he organized his life and was like clockwork. And, you know, he didn't smoke, drink, swear, party. You know, we'd play some basketball, and he was always fun. He was a good roommate, but never deviated from, like, his schedule. He was very, very, very organized. I mean... And as far as as far as anything out of the ordinary with regard no, to n- never, not nothing. And with if re- you know the sixties, and you know anybody would have done any of that, would not have survived in a locker room environment. What do you mean? by I that? mean, our buddies—they're some pretty tough guys, and it would never have gone. So you're saying there's absolutely no chance that Jerry had any sort of proclivity towards young boys no. or anything like that. No, I mean, and and if and again, none of us would have tolerated. I don't care. A lot more liberal today than it was then. That's for sure, as far as attitude. So, yeah, no, it was. He was a good roommate. Now, you know, did we talk about a lot of stuff in depth? I wouldn't say that, but I knew how much the uh, his dad's home in Washington with the bug house with the. You know, taking in all the kids and all meant to Jerry. That was very, very important to him. And so when he had this charity in Second Mile, and none of that shocked me because that's what he grew up with. I mean, his dad really—that's what he wanted to be. And and then just to be clear, uh, you know, obviously football players in college, there's usually a lot of uh, partying, a lot of girls, you know, yeah. that, that kind of thing. Uh, even back in your day, I'm sure that was the the, the case. Uh, was Jerry uh, outside the norm when it came to to that area? I mean, how would you describe him? Well, that wasn't part. Of, no, that wasn't part of his everyday. Like I said, he was. It was all athletics. It was all studying. It was, you know, there was no lecturing or nothing. I mean, we didn't bug him because that's just what he didn't do. I mean, he just wasn't into that stuff. No, I mean we'd go to the parties and all, and but no, we. But but for, just to be clear, you never saw him once with a uh, with a young teenage boy. Uh, no, absolutely not. <laughs> okay. No, uh, no. And and to this day, you don't believe any of the charges against him, do you? Well, what I what I think, and it's my own personal opinion. You know, there's so many people saying so many things. I'm I'm confused, but. I thought his defense was horrible. I thought his lawyer was horrible. I mean, I've written him that in the early days that I just, 
The only complaint I have is I wish he would have stood up on the rooftops and screamed and yelled and fought a little harder in the beginning. And that's always upset me. I, I don't to this day understand why we didn't. Let me, can I give you a theory? These accusers a little more than he did. Can I give you a theory on, on why that happened? Good. Because that bothered me a lot too. I mean, that was very difficult for me to understand because I'm thinking if this is me, and I'm being accused well, of oh, definitely. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm screaming from the mountaintop just like you're saying that Jerry should have. But he, here's what I I believe is now the case. You would agree that Jerry is a very naive person, right? You, you yes. Would, he's an exceedingly naive person, mm-hmm. uh, and um and he's also a a very religious person. You would agree with that too, right? Yes. Okay. So so I and his, and his wife is as well. I I think here's what happened. I think that they had no idea, no idea that one people would believe these stories, that these accusers could go through with this because they love mm. these guys. And I think they were afraid of attacking them during the very short period of time when they could have. And it would have been effective before his credibility was completely shot. Right. I think I think that they were very hesitant to do that because they loved these guys and they were confused. They didn't want. They didn't think they needed to attack them because they thought that when it, when the rubber met the road, that none of these guys would be able to take the stand and actually tell these stories. And that uh, I also believe that they think that Jesus was going to save them, and that they didn't need to do anything extraordinary. And I know this from having worked with them for over five or almost five years now, mm-hmm. where where they do not take. Good advice, because they think it will all work out. Does that fit with the, the Jerry and Dottie that you know? Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I know that in the beginning we talked about some things, and there were a couple of the parents of those kids who were mad that the kids had gravitated towards Jerry, and for whatever reason, you know, they felt there was some kind of friction between the parents and Jerry, but there was never any mention that there was any problem with the kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, so that, yeah, this whole thing came from left field, and I don't really believe they thought any of this was going to occur. Last thing, and this gets back to the date issue. Some people might be wondering, how in the world is it possible that we could only now be finding out six years plus later that this date of when this McQuarrie episode occurred was maybe five or six weeks before he ever told Joe Paterno. To, to the layperson, they think, that's insane. There's, there's got to be something wrong. We couldn't, a case this uh, investigated could never have this large a finding occur this late. And, and what I would tell people is, you don't know Jerry. Uh, Jerry won't say anything he's not positive of. And you also don't know the people around him have been so incompetent and and so un- unwilling to get to the bottom of what really happened here that, to me, this is perfectly plausible that Jerry has been ruminating about this for six years and not only now has had his memory refreshed to the point where he's confident enough to say, yep, that was the actual date. Does that jive with the guy you know? Very much, and I got to tell you, because my son and, you know, they all said, well, Dad, how did you not know that was the date? And I said, I never even thought about the date. I just assumed that people in charge, I, I didn't even know we were considering there was a conflict of dates. Of course So, not. no, I am stunned that that could be the date that supposedly this thing happened. It's, it boggles my mind that nobody's ever brought that up before. Well, that's this case. That's this case in a nutshell, Tom. <laughs> no, I agree, and I'm just, yeah, but you're right, Jerry, because, I mean, him and Joe had some, you know, battles coaching-wise. Sure. And when we would get together, Jerry would never say anything bad about anybody. Like, we were his buddies, and we would kind of try to egg him and give us some inside stuff about what was going on, and you couldn't get it. I mean, he wouldn't say, well, Joe's mad at me for this or this went wrong. Or, he just would never say anything. Mm-hmm. So I'm not surprised that he would not talk about against those kids. But 
when you're facing life in prison, then I think you got to, you know, you got to speak up at that point. That's kind of, that was my opinion, and I did not like his defense at all. I thought the lawyer was horrible. Well, I'm I'm just now realizing just how bad his lawyer Joe Amendola really was, and I yeah. and I've actually texted him uh, this weekend, to which he has not responded. Uh, that I believe that he's the reason, the main reason why Jerry Sandusky is going to die in prison, uh, yeah. and and uh, and it's it's just it's the whole thing is the biggest travesty I've ever seen. But but Tom, I want to thank you one for your time, two for your your you know obvious honesty and, and just trying to tell me what you remember happened in, in the, in the most honest way you can. And three for, for being a good friend to Jerry, uh, when, you know, a lot of people obviously would have fallen by the wayside, uh, by the way, it's important for people to know you're not part of like an incredibly small group. Most of Jerry's close friends have in fact, uh, stayed loyal to him. Is, is that a fair assessment? Yes. Well, you name me one of his teammates, or even players that played for him that have they've they've criticized what they assume is the result here, but you've never heard one person come out with any accusation no. that I know of. I can't think of one. No, they haven't. No, they haven't. And and just, and against it's obviously not in your self interest to remain friends with Jerry Sandusky at this point. Oh no! As a matter of fact, when I say that, sometimes people look at me like you know what. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I, you know, I've gotten right. that over the years. Of course, because you actually know the truth, and that and that, and the people that know mm-hmm. the truth of this case are the crazy ones. That's that's the yep. insanity. And my buddies that I still hang out with now at home here, they have a more of an open mind because they've heard my stories about what I think. So right now, when you when but you, now if you just meet somebody and say who your roommate was, I get looked at like what's you know <laughs> what are you kidding me? Fair enough. But all right, well, Tom, great job. Thanks so much for your time, and and let's keep in touch, okay? All right. Thank you, John. All right. That's Tom Frederick, uh, college roommate for two years of Jerry Sandusky, who um, – and I know that that is uh, deep in the weeds for people who have not followed this case, but the bottom line is this. Here's the bottom line. I am now as sure as you can be that the actual date of this, the infamous Mike McQuarrie episode – was December 29th of 2000. And that, if true, is a massive bombshell because it means that Mike McQuarrie never told anybody, including Joe Paterno, about this for over five weeks. Five weeks. And what facilitates him going to Joe Paterno? Well... We now know because that the date of that meeting was February 10th of 2000. Well, something interesting happens on February 8th. On February 8th of 2000, a job opens up. Kenny Jackson leaves Penn State to go to Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh Steelers. The wide receivers coaching job opens up. Mike wants that job. He does not get it, which should blow up any cover-up theory because that's the first thing Joe Paterno would have done is give Mike McQuarrie the open job and say, hey, thanks for coming to me. By the way, you've been doing a great job. Congratulations. You're the new wide receivers coach. Interestingly, he does get that job three years later under suspicious circumstances, by the way, not suspicious from Paterno's perspective, but from McQuarrie's standpoint. This guy is a manipulator. This guy is a sabotager of people he sees as the enemy. This is a guy who was sending penis pictures, still is to this day. I have, unfortunately, one of them on my phone. (laughs) Penis pictures to people, not his wife. Uh, He's divorced now. He was gambling on college football games. This is a guy who's a known liar. I mean, his ex-wife left a note uh, on the counter of the house that they just sold. They happen to sell it to a Penn State alum, and the note is bizarre, but it makes it clear that she thinks that Mike is a huge, tremendously good liar. This is not a good person. This is a guy capable of anything. He's in it for himself, and he holds this information until he has reason to use it, which is 
I want FaceTime with Joe Paterno in the context of being a good Boy Scout, doing a good deed, and maybe that will help get me this open job. And so it's the event on the 8th that facilitates the meeting on the morning of the 10th. And the only mystery left for me here is, okay, supposedly there's a meeting between Mike McQuarrie and his dad and this Dr. Dranoff, who is a friend of the McQuarrie family, where they discuss this and they decide to go to Joe Paterno, supposedly the next morning. Well, I think the most logical scenario is that that meeting was called by Mike not in reaction to seeing Jerry Sandusky with a boy in a shower. It was called by Mike in reaction to Mike McQuarrie trying to figure out, do I tell Joe Paterno about this? And it may have even been called by Mike McQuarrie as a way for him to practice what he was going to tell Joe Paterno about what he saw because he hadn't told anybody, the evidence indicates, for over five weeks. Now, you're probably wondering, John, why are you believing Jerry Sandusky over Mike McQuarrie? Well, there's lots of good reasons to. Mike McQuarrie got the first version of this date completely wrong. He testified on multiple occasions that it was March 1st of 2002. So Jerry never got it wrong. Jerry knew immediately, no, that's not the date. And he knew it wasn't the date because he always connected it to the Virginia job and his book coming out, which he knew were at the very end of 2000, beginning of 2001. So he knew immediately that could not be true. And he was right. Mike McQuarrie was wrong. Also, Mike McQuarrie said in his first version of the story, this event occurred over spring break. There was nothing going on on campus. Well, um, we know it was not spring break because he goes to Joe Paterno February 10th. Therefore, it obviously happened before February 10th. All that's way before spring break. What's the break before spring break? I mean, I'll give Mike the benefit of the doubt. He would know. I mean, he, he felt as if there was no one on campus. It was quiet. It was during the time period of a break. You would remember that. I get it. But that means it's winter break. What's December 29th? It's right smack in the middle of winter break. And then there are other elements of this story that I think give Jerry far more credibility than Mike. By the way, Tom Frederick is one of them. Because Tom Frederick couldn't be a better witness. (laughs) He's no-nonsense Tell it like it is. He remembers exactly the details in a way that jibe completely with Jerry's story, which pinpoint one date, December 29th, verified by newspaper articles and by the fact that Virginia gives Al Groh that job on December 30th. This is all matter of public record. Mike has nothing. Mike has nothing to corroborate his story other than the meeting with his dad and Dr. Dranoff, which there's no indication his dad and Dr. Dranoff have ever pinpointed an exact date. And which, by the way, I'm I've, as I've already stated, may not even be relevant because it's quite possible Mike called the meeting on the date in which he said, which is now presumed the night before the Joe Paterno meeting, but not because he had just seen something, which, by the way, is always makes a hell of a lot more sense to me than the story that we were told. Because the story we were told, I'm like, really? So at 9.30 to 10 o'clock on a cold Friday night in February in State College, Pennsylvania, you're going to call over your boss for a meeting at home? We're not, not Mike's home, but apparently the home of Mike's dad? That sounds like a big stinking deal. Something, by the way, you might want to call the police about if that's what really happened. That seems like a stretch. On a dime, on a late Friday night in February, you're going to get everybody together. That can't wait till the next morning? A more plausible scenario is that day on February 9th, Mike's thinking about the Kenny Jackson job, and he's going, should I go tell Joe? Should I go tell Joe? 
what are the ramifications if I tell Joe about this? How's this going to play? Well, maybe I should talk to my dad. He calls his dad. Dad says, hey, Dr. Dranov, you want to come over, talk to Mike? And Mike, you got to remember, all anyone remembers is day or night. That's all you're going to remember. Was it during the day or during the night? So it could have been an after-dinner get-together that was planned well before during that day. No one's going to remember 10 years later. The best you're going to remember was, did this happen during the day or during the night? So, and, and by the way, Jerry has never bought into the February 9th, 2001 date, which is what ended up being the prosecution's uh, opinion about this at trial, even though it might have helped him, <laughs> which is classic Jerry Sadowski, because I'll never get over the fact that that when we thought it was February 9th, Jerry is telling me that the kid he was with that day, Alan Myers, was off of school. He was positive. He was off of school. He would never have taken him out of school when he spent the whole day with him. And so I called up his high school, West Branch High School, and I got the secretary on the phone. I said, can we go through old school calendars? And she said, okay, sure, why? And I, I don't remember the story I gave her. I gave her some BS story. <laughs> I did not tell her it was to try to exonerate Jerry Sandusky. And I, and I said, did you guys have school on February 9th, a Friday, 2001? And she's like, yep, we did. And I'm like, crap. Because in my mind at that time, I'm thinking maybe – Jerry's not telling me the truth about who the kid was. Maybe there was some other kid, or maybe it's some other event, or there's something wrong with Jerry's story. Well, I now believe <laughs> that Jerry was right all along because February 9th was not the day. And then there's just one other element of this story that, that people might go, well, wait a minute, John, what about this? And that is, wouldn't Mike have been awfully insecure about telling Joe Paterno about an event that occurred five weeks before, and wouldn't he have told somebody that it happened five weeks before? Because otherwise he's going to look like a complete jackass when Jerry gets questioned about it, and Jerry says, wait a minute, that didn't happen last night. That was five weeks before. Well, what I now know about the nature of that meeting between Joe Paterno and Mike McQuarrie is that it was incredibly quick. According to the testimony, which hopefully will become public very soon, of Sue Paterno, Joe's wife, who was there that day, this was a three-minute meeting. This was a three-minute meeting, which, first of all, tells you it's no big deal. Second of all, it tells you there's a darn good chance Mike never got the chance to tell Joe that it was five weeks ago I saw this. Joe may have just assumed you're coming to me this in the morning, you called me, this seems urgent, this must have happened last night. And once Joe Paterno makes that assumption and passes it up the food chain, it's over. It's gospel. Joe Paterno said it happened last night. Anybody who looks into this after that, which Penn State did, is going to automatically presume, well, it's got to be the night before he saw Joe because that's what Joe said. That's what makes sense. Why even question it? So I think there's a darn good chance Mike McQuarrie to this day has never even been asked. Are you sure it happened the night before you went to Joe Paterno? And no one's going to ask him now. He's got his multi-multi-million dollars from his lawsuit. He's never going to talk about this again unless he's forced at gunpoint. And as far as Dr. Dranoff, I mean, I'll probably try to contact Dr. Dranoff, but he's never going to talk to me because I'm notorious in this case. And the reality is he's not going to remember anyway. Plus, he's very good friends with Mike McQuarrie and the McQuarrie family. But this is the scenario that now makes the most sense. It makes It's completely consistent with all the known evidence. And Jerry's story is a hell of a lot more credible than McQuarrie's story is. And it blows up the entire case. From I mean, it's, it completely destroys it. Now, as far as what's going to happen next, I don't know. I, I told you a couple weeks ago that there's a, a very good chance that a major media outlet is going to finally tell the other side of the story. We're still waiting on the Washington Post. That could be happening any day. I'm not that optimistic about the Post story. I'm not as optimistic as I was about 
this other mainstream media outlet, not because that they have lost interest in it or, or what have you. It's just that things don't seem to be coming together as I had anticipated, certainly not timing-wise, and so I'm getting very nervous about that. It could just be my pessimistic nature. I'm not sure. But the reality is that I'm just not certain. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm very uncertain about what's going on. A lot of people are putting a lot of work into it, I can assure you that, doing the best we can. I just don't know what's going to happen because, unfortunately, this is the craziest story of all time and there's no unity anywhere and nobody wants to play on the same team, and that's causing a lot of problems behind the scenes. But stay tuned and make sure you check out, if you're interested in this story at all, framingpaterno.com. I urge you to check out, once again, the two interviews I did last week uh, on this podcast regarding a new book out by Mark Pendergrast, indicating that uh, Jerry Sandusky is, in fact, innocent. And with an doc- interview with memory expert Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, who has testified on Jerry Sandusky's behalf, you can find those at freespeechbroadcasting.com. And once again, framingpaterno.com is the website uh, of record for all the crazy truth of this insane case, which I'll continue on at least for a little while longer until I've, until if this, this next thing falls through, I may have to finally just say, all right, screw it. I give up. I've done everything I can. I wash my hands finally and I move on, but we're not quite there yet. All right. Uh, so that's the uh, hour number three, a special bonus hour of the world according to Zig podcast. As always, please make sure you share it via social media, Twitter, Facebook, or word of mouth and do yourself a favor. If you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets, Please pay attention to this important message. My name's John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed. Ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mmm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should, oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.